0: They're coming to get you, Barbara. You're tearing me apart! I'm
1: Charles Foster Kane!
0: You're at heart a sentimentalist.
2: movies podcast where we talk about underseen films lesser known gems and unrecognized masterpieces maligned and panned by audiences and critics alike this is episode 12 and i'm very pleased to introduce my guest writer editor critic historian podcaster author a million other things (laughs) um but uh author of the upcoming book the legacy of world war ii and european art house cinema from mcfarland books sam deegan hi sam Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, I already told you this once, but uh, I I'll never get over the fact that uh, I get to speak with you because I've, you know, been listening to your commentaries and reading your writing for uh, years now. So it's uh, very exciting for me. It's a complete honor. Um, I want to start out by talking about this new book of yours, um, and so. What happened was I had asked you uh, if you'd be interested in coming on the show. You said yes, and you picked initially behind the green door, and I thought oh, very exciting. Um, I get to speak with someone who's going to know more about uh, kind of you know uh, the golden age of adult cinema uh, than I do. Uh, but then you were like, "Hey, I have this book. What if we do a different movie?" And uh, I was a little relieved because, <laughs> I'm, you know, it, this gives me more time to kind of dive into, you know, the the golden age stuff. Anyways, um, so the legacy of World War II in European art house cinema. Um, tell me about that.
1: It is a. Weird project for me. Well, it's not a weird project. It's weird to me that it's like finally coming out in the world sure. because it's something that I started working on, you know, many, probably six years ago oh, wow. when I just had a blog and I had just started writing for some different, maybe even, yeah, I think six years ago. And so I didn't really have a freelancing career to speak of. I had like three people who read my writing (laughs) and I hadn't even started podcasting yet. And it just started out as this like sprawling thing where I kind of thought to myself, okay, I would like to write about cult cinema and World War II. Mm. And so it started off as including all different kinds of movies, like movies made in Hollywood during the war movies, basically like I had no real parameters. And so I I just started kind of amassing all this material. (laughs) And as my career took off, I had less and less time to work on it, but I still had like, you know, 120,000 words or something crazy. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, okay, I should probably try to release some version of this project. And I've had such anxiety about it, I think, because it's like my baby. Sure. And I feel really good about the focus that the current book has. And I'm, you know, hoping to do something with some of the other material. And we can definitely talk about that a little bit more when we get into Casablanca, because there are so many things I couldn't include. And I think there's already such a wealth of writing about World War II in terms of its impact on culture. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you're going to put out a book on World War II movies, it better have a very specific focus. Yeah. So I narrowed it down to movies made between basically 45 and like 1985. Okay. Okay. And so I tried to only include art house, non-mainstream films made in countries that experienced the war firsthand. Okay. So there are no British films because they weren't occupied. Sure. And there are no American films, although there are a lot of American films referenced because you can't really talk about the state of European cinema without acknowledging the ways that it's referencing and responding to Hollywood films. Right. And I love that exchange. And that's definitely something I think we should talk about more because you wouldn't have things like Casablanca or the entire genre of film noir without all of these European artists and filmmakers going to Hollywood. So I think that exchange is something that's always been really interesting to me. So those are the parameters of the book. And I think what I tried to focus on were very complicated, often transgressive films that look at things like trauma and violence and sexuality and like personal identity versus concepts of national identity and the way that different countries maybe mythologized the war, like France and the French resistance, for example, which of course shows up a little bit in Casablanca. And so it's, it's one of those things that I think has so many tendrils in films in lots of different countries, but sadly I had to narrow it down a, at least a little bit.
2: Sure. Can you, um, like f- for instance, what are, what are some of the titles that you wrote about?
1: <clears throat> so I started, I tried to go in loosely chronological order and I tried to kind of group films into chapters. So I start off talking about Italian neorealism and people like Roberto Roberto Rossellini and his war trilogy and the way that that kind of shaped a lot of the films to come after it. Sure, um, I talk about things like Hiroshima Mon Amour and Alain Rene and his influence in in uh, French cinema in the 50s and 60s. I talk a lot about Pasolini and Salo and Nazi exploitation. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a fine line for me because I tried not to get, I tried to pretty much stick with art house. So I don't cover horror movies unless I think they also fall under that kind of art house umbrella. Yeah. But I felt like I had to put Italian Nazi exploitation in there because it's just such a bonkers subgenre.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um, I also I cover Soviet cinema, especially the films that kind of go against the mainstream expectations of the communist censors. Things like "Come and See." Mm. Oh yeah. Um, I talk about. I have a, a chapter on Polish films, so I talk about people like Andrzej Żuawski and Third Part of the Night, hmm. which is his debut film about his father's experiences during the Holocaust. Um, I have a chapter on Czech films. I have a chapter on uh, New German cinema. Actually, I have two chapters on New German cinema because Fassbender needed his own chapter because he, <laughs> he, covers the, he touches on the war or addresses it directly in so many of his films. Mm. It was like, okay, you're getting your own. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot in
0: there.
2: Yeah. Well, that's really exciting. And, um, excuse me. And having something, uh, you know, finally seeing the light of day after, you know, incubating and, um, uh, you know, uh, being, you know, behind closed doors for so long is very exciting. And I'm very excited for you. Um, where can, so this is up for pre-order right now, correct?
1: Yes. On McFarland's site. And I've been sharing the link on my social media, which I'm on Instagram and Twitter at, at Sam Deegan with two Ms. And I'm, I'm like technically on Facebook, but I hate it. So I don't really (laughs) post anything on there or respond to messages. Uh, but I will keep sharing more about when it's actual release date is because I, I think they put it in their spring catalog, Mm. but I don't think it has an actual date attached to it yet.
2: Okay. Yeah. if, If you, if you just go to Sam's Uh, you know, a Twitter profile, you'll see it. She has the link at the top um, of her profile there and it'll take you to the McFarland site and uh, you can read a little more about it. And it's very exciting. Um, and after, after, uh, we kind of changed movies to talk about Casablanca, um, and diving into, uh, I, for my picks, I kind of went with the war, um, uh, was really exciting because I, you know, I haven't, uh, uh, you know, that that's sort of a genre or um, um, era that I really haven't uh, um, dived into deeply. And so it was really fun. Uh, but we'll, we'll get there here in the second half of the show. Um, so if you are a new listener, let me tell you what uh, Cult Movies Podcast is about. This is born out of Danny Perry's series of books, called cult movies and each episode i have our guest pick a movie from danny's books and right now we're just in book one obviously with episode 12 and uh so we discuss that movie and then uh on the second half of the show we offer up three pairings a piece uh that uh you know based off of that initial film Um, And so before we get into our feature movie, Sam, how do you personally define a cult movie?
1: It's funny because I think I have sort of two definitions, one that I use most often and then another one, and (laughs) only one of those applies to Casablanca. So, So it's sort of ironic that this is the one that we're talking about, but for me, most of the time, I think of cult movies as being non-mainstream. So that could apply to everything from genre films like horror and sci-fi, to art house movies, to sex and exploitation films. And that tends to be the area where I work the most in terms of my my criticism career. Although I, I do also do a lot of work with classic cinema. So it Casablanca isn't too far off, but obviously none of those things apply to Casablanca at all because it's not, (laughs) it's not a genre film and it's mainstream. And not only is it mainstream, but it's political propaganda. Mm. And so my second definition, which I think is something that Danny Peary uses much more in his books is this idea of a cult movie as something being kind of inexplicably popular hmm. and developing a literal kind of cult following sure. where people are just obsessed with it and they know everything about it and they can quote all the dialogue and maybe they own, you know, posters or model props or, or things like that. And I feel like, and I'm sure this is. I think come up on some of your past episodes where people talk about how for a lot of people, I think stuff like Rocky horror comes to mind right? and Casablanca is one of those movies like citizen Kane that if you ask the average person, do you think this is a cult movie? They probably would say no, because I think by this point it's so well regarded as this, you know, Hollywood masterpiece. But when it came out, it wasn't hated the way Citizen Kane was or misunderstood, really. It just... People thought it was fine. Right. Like, it won some awards and it got some critical acclaim and it definitely gave Bogart's career a boost. But it's one of those things where it didn't... I I feel like people think of it the way they think of Titanic where when it came out, it was just this massive success that took over everything, which if you're old enough to remember that it was horrible. You (laughs) couldn't get away from that fucking. Oh God. It was awful, 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 truly awful. But Casablanca was not like that when it came out, people were like, yeah, this movie is good, but they didn't think it was great. They didn't think it was worthy of special attention. And so I think, Part of why he considers it a cult movie... I mean, it sort of is baffling to me why why he put it in his book. Yeah, right. But I also kind of get it because I think there are a lot of really important golden age of Hollywood films that don't have the kind of reputation that Casablanca has. And so it obviously has taken on this sort of persona of its own outside of what the film actually is. Right. And so maybe that's why it deserves to be included. And it is also just this, and I think he talks about this, it's this like baffling combination of things that everyone wants in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> like it shouldn't work.
2: Uh, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. He, in in Danny's essay in his book, uh, he gets into it and, and I'm uh, each episode <clears throat> I read a little passage of his essay and I actually, uh, I remember, I don't know, last week, maybe I'd posted, you know, promoting the show, like, you know, coming up, we have blah, 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 blah. And, you know, Sam Deegan talking about Casablanca and somebody was like, is Casablanca really a cult movie? <laughs> and in, 2021, no. I mean, like, you know, it's, what is it, number three, not that it matters, but number three on the, you know, American Film Institute, you know, 100, whatever, greatest movies, whatever, American movies. Um, And so, like, as far as, as long as I can remember, uh, so, for instance, my favorite movie of all time is in, I love exploitation movies, I love horror, I love cult cinema, but my favorite movie of all time is When Harry Met Sally. and. Really? Oh, I love it. It's so funny. It's very touching. I don't know. I, you know, I just, I never get sick of it. Um, I've never seen it. (laughs) Oh, really? That's so weird. So my, (laughs) one of my best friends, Ryan, just texted me last night. He said, hey, I just want to let you know, uh, my wife and I just watched When Harry Met Sally for the first time and we loved it. And I was like, yeah, hello. Because, you know, it's just, it, it. It's it's uh, I don't want to say it's comfort food, but it's it's like a it's it's a sweet snack. I mean, there's nothing to hate about it, you know. Anyways, when Harry met Sally, like they they talk about Casablanca in the film, and I think that was probably when I saw when Harry met Sally. You know, when I was I don't know seven or eight years old, uh, that was probably the first time I heard Casablanca, and then a few years later, I watched the movie for the first time. And uh, so in my mind, like those two are always married. And so for me personally, I think a perfect double feature would be Casablanca and When Harry Met Sally. Uh, but for the show, we we try to go, you know, a little lesser known. But so I was reading Danny's essay today. And I was like, why is Casablanca in this? I, I understand like uh, Citizen Kane. You know, you know, reading, uh, you know, Pauline Kael's essay like that really explains why that is a cult movie. But Casablanca, why, why? Why? So anyways, I'm reading Danny's essay. And this is this is what he opens with. He says the Casablanca Humphrey Bogart cult really took root in the early 60s in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when the Brattle Theater started running the picture three weeks a year, year after year. It was there, long before the audience participation phenomenon surrounding the Rocky Horror Picture Show, that Bogart addicts came back repeatedly and joined their idol as he spoke such classic lines. And then he prattles off, you know, the all, all the many lines in the movie. And he continues, he says, Afterward, Many viewers gathered in the Casablanca, the bar located below the theater, where perhaps they would bogart cigarettes and commiserate <laughs> over their brews about how pictures aren't made like that anymore. And so that was really interesting. <clears throat> so it's literally a cult. Like it developed this cult in Cambridge, Mass., uh, which is super interesting to me, and, I mean, you know, makes me wish how awesome would it be to, you know, go to one or several of those screenings, and then hang out in the bar afterwards, um, because, you know, I think many of us have, uh, and you brought it up, and then Danny brought it up, Rocky Horror, you know, I think many of us have been to those midnight screenings of Rocky Horror, where we're given props, and people are dressed up, and everyone's shouting and throwing shit at the screen, um, but I've never been to a screening of Casablanca where people are like repeating the lines with it. Uh, and I think that would be awesome.
1: I agree. But I also think that highlights a really important point, which I I think I have to get it out of the way early in this episode and sort of explain something that I think is going to make some people angry or is <laughs> going to be an unpopular opinion, which is, I love Casablanca. I love Humphrey Bogart, but, and I love Michael Curtiz, the director, and we will definitely have to talk about him a little bit later, but I don't think that Casablanca is a particularly great film. And I don't think that Humphrey Bogart is a particularly talented actor. I think he's somebody who has a ton of charisma and there is, you know which Danny Piri references this cult of personality around certain actors. And I think with some of them, they don't really act. They just show up and they're yep. themselves on screen. Yep. And it's so interesting in Casablanca to see the way that plays out because you have this stacked cast of just heavy hitters who could all like act the pants off anyone And Humphrey Bogart just talent-wise can't compete with that. I mean, (laughs) Claude Rains steals every scene away from him. Yes. And so does Sidney Greenstreet. Oh, my
2: God. Yeah, of course. But,
1: but like, and I think this is much more apparent if you watch some of the early film noir that he's in before he becomes Humphrey Bogart the star. Yeah. Like, yeah when he's in a lot of those early gangster movies in the thirties and I think the turning point is sort of around things like high Sierra Hmm. where he starts to kind of come into his own a little bit and it's, it's so hard for me to talk about this because it sounds like I'm talking shit on him when really I don't mean to, but it's like, I, I guess sort of my point here is I truly don't understand why Casablanca is in the top 10 greatest films of all time, because it's just not. I mean, you could talk about Citizen Kane that way, and that definitely is a cult film, because... Under my first definition, because it wasn't made for a mainstream audience, it was made for an audience of one. Yeah, exactly.
2: The filmmaker
1: didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is delightful. But <laughs> I think the reason Casablanca is so successful through so many decades and has developed this cult of people who know all the lines of dialogue. I mean, if, even if you're, if we're still talking about Citizen Kane, people don't know all the lines. They know Rosebud. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> come on. And so I think some of it, and this is one of the things that I find so fascinating, I think some of it is that it is a movie that manages to have, it, it's, it's almost like somebody made this list of, okay, here are the things that you need to make a successful mainstream film, like a romance and some sort of intrigue and maybe some crime. But like, it doesn't actually tip into violence. And even though sex is suggested and some sort of, you know, quote unquote immorality, especially around Claude (laughs) Rains' character. Oh
2: my God. Yeah, right
1: it's like it doesn't come anywhere near close to being like a pre-code film or something. Right. And the thing that's so fascinating to me about Casablanca is it was made at a time when Hollywood was very reluctantly just starting to make world war II movies mm-hmm. and Pearl Harbor at the end of 1941 is really the tipping point for this where we got kind of sucked into the war. And so Hollywood and the Office of War Information basically said, yes, okay, now we can start making pro-war films or films that are meant to convince Americans why we should fight. And Frank Capra, of course, has this whole series called Why We Fight. And Julius and Phil Epstein, who wrote the script for Casablanca, went to work on that. So, like, this is literally a propaganda film in <laughs> in so many different ways. And that's also why I don't understand, like, of the hundreds of films Hollywood made in the 40s in support of the wars, many of which are incredible films, it's like, why is this the one that still resonates
2: almost a 100 years later? It's like, I just... <laughs> Right. Well, okay. So I, I think that's two things here stick out to me. One, uh, that to me sounds like, uh, if someone just having not, uh, known like anything about Casablanca, uh, besides a plot, not known its history or, uh, you know, that it's on all these lists and it's one of the greatest blah, blah, blah. And someone just says, uh, you know, the, the two guys that originally wrote this, started the screenplay, went off to to write these um, this series of films for Frank Capra and um, all that stuff you said. To me, I'm like, oh, that sounds like some sort of cult movie. And so I think that's really interesting. Uh, and I, Danny doesn't really bring that up in his essay. And uh, but when you boil it down like that, to me, that makes a, something like that makes a cult movie. Uh, the other thing is that, um, uh, oh fuck. I forgot what I was going to say. Son of a bitch. Um, oh, how, so it originated as a play and, uh, an unproduced play called everybody comes to Rick's, uh, which by the way is like (laughs) the, the, oh my God, it's horrible. (laughs) So bad. Um, but when you watch the movie, and you think, okay, these guys are uh, adapting it from a stage play. I kind of see it. Um oh, yeah. and then uh, Koch—is that how you the the other the guy who who took over writing uh, for the Epstein's? Uh, you know, he kind of made it. I don't know uh, more. I don't know some. Sound...
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: right, and. I don't know. I just, I just think it's really interesting. The other thing with Bogart is that um, I 100 percent agree with you. I don't think he's a great actor. I think he's a memorable actor because he's a memorable yeah. face. He's a memorable voice. I mean, for God's sakes, like uh, uh, what is that uh, um, the Robert Day movie? The uh, oh, the man with Bogart's face. Uh, oh, you God. know, with Robert Sachi. Oh.
1: Talk about cult movies. Yeah,
2: no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you know, it's you know, you got this Bogart impersonator uh, making all these movies, and I think you know that in in turn makes Humphrey Bogart a cult movie star, even though he was in all these big Hollywood movies. And and I just wanted to read something real quick from uh, Danny's, um, and not. Uh, I'm not, like, obsessed with Danny, but, I mean, you know, the podcast is uh, based off of his books. But in Cult Movie Stars, uh, what does he write? Oh, he wrote something about... Uh, hold on, I have it right here. Okay, uh, Danny says, His appeal is elemental. Like only the great stars, he hits a raw nerve. And, again, I don't think that's from his performances... I think that's just from
0: him, him. Like, yeah, we,
2: we never, we never saw Humphrey Bogart play uh, some, some crazy character, right? We saw Humphrey Bogart just play Humphrey Bogart.
1: Sure. And I think that's what is on some level. So fascinating to me about those kinds of actors and, they all have this inexplicable mainstream appeal. I mean, if you think about somebody like Bruce Willis, he literally is just Bruce Willis in every movie that he appears in. <laughs> and, <laughs> and granted, I, I don't ever want to put him in the same category <laughs> as Gregory Bogart, no disrespect, but it's it's like you hear about these great actors who all take on these sorts of repertory roles. Like everybody wants to play Hamlet at some point right. and everybody wants to be in this type of role and blah, blah, blah. And you have none of that with Humphrey Bogart. He just, he also, I think if you compare him with somebody like Marlon Brando, who also has just this like sheer insane charisma, Yeah. but I think is talented in a very different way. It's like, someone like Brando has this really incredible sex appeal, especially when he's younger and this sense of like masculinity or kind of latent violence. And Humphrey Bogart doesn't have any of those things. (laughs) (laughs) like, Like he's in a lot of movies where he kills people or it's implied that he kills people or he's, in a lot of these really incredible film noir titles where he should be that sort of character, but he's not. And I just, like, can't wrap my brain around it.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, he has zero, I mean, in my opinion, zero sex appeal. Um, None and like, so I remember the first time I saw Humphrey Bogart was the African queen when I was a little kid and that was my grandma's favorite movie. And, and we would watch it all the time. And I still love the movie. Uh, but I remember just even as a little kid, you know, at, I don't know, six or seven years old thinking this guy's really gross. <laughs> and I mean, they, they play it up as he's gross, yeah. always chomping on the cigar and, you know, obviously it's hot and sweaty down there, but, uh, But that, you know, look at a lot of these people that they turned uh, into caricatures that showed up on cartoons all the time. Uh, Humphrey Bogart, Peter Lorre, who's also in this, uh, you know, Bing Crosby, like these these guys who had. Yeah, Bing is another one where (laughs) he
1: he and Humphrey Bogart, I think, do have this thing in common where they're in all of these movies with romantic plots and so it's like they have this kind of sexless romantic appeal yeah. that I, I don't understand but I find fascinating.
2: Yeah, they you know, I think I mean, who who knows, but I would like to think uh the producers or the the directors or whoever you know, looked at these guys and knew, okay, th- these aren't the most, you know, the the most handsome men in the world uh and so we're going to play up uh, you know, their balls, their manliness, like women are just falling like women are, are dying to rip their pants off just because they're men, because they sweat and they smell like musk. And I mean, you know, that's what that's what I think when I look at Bing and when I look at Humphrey Bogart, like these guys, you know, they, they smell musky and and, you know, the like like pipe smoke and cigar smoke. Um, and I
1: don't know about all that, but. <laughs> I look at Bing Crosby and do not think anything about
2: balls. <laughs> oh, well, okay. Okay. That makes I just, sense.
1: I, I feel like they're they are a very specific version of masculinity, but it's, it's not, they're not like Robert Ryan who is going to punch everyone on the street and then <laughs> like throw you over his shoulder and carry you away. Right. Or, or like Robert Mitchum, which right. that to me is a, He's somebody where I do think he is very talented, but I think he has this sexual charisma that is why he was so popular. But for people like Humphrey Bogart and definitely for Bing Crosby, I think part of their appeal is maybe that there's they have this kind of like safe, non, I don't know non-confrontational but kind of tragic quality sure and i think that is definitely what works for bogart as rick i mean you get the sense that he could spring to action when needed which is why the end of the film works the way it does but he's also just such a great stand-in for this sort of jaded tired american who just doesn't want to fucking get involved
2: yeah (laughs) Yeah, it's like not my problem. It, well, exactly. Okay, l- let me let me jump back here real quick. Uh, do you remember the first time you saw this? Uh, saw Casablanca.
1: Oh, I was probably seven or eight. Okay
2: did yeah, it I, Did it so, stick with you then?
1: Oh yeah. So I was mostly raised by my grandparents, both of whom grew up during World War II, and my grandmother in particular really loved classic films. So we would watch a lot of movies together on TV. Sort of our our kind of unspoken agreement is that I would watch a classic movie with her and then she would watch a horror movie with me hmm. and would have no judgment about it. Like sure. sometimes, sometimes she would say like, okay, this is a bit much for me. I'm not going to watch this one. But it was never that sort of standard parent like you're too young for this. What is this violent nonsense? It was right. like, okay, if you watch this Orson Welles movie with me, I will watch, you know, whatever nonsense with people getting their heads cut off that you want to (laughs) watch. And I think it was, in retrospect, really important for me to see some of those classic films early on. And Mm -hmm. especially even if I didn't get a chance to see the full films, because a lot of this is just like stuff that we managed to find on TV. So sometimes you would catch it halfway through or, you know, Yep. But Casablanca, I think, especially when Turner Classic Movies became a thing, it was just always fucking on. Yeah. And so, I it must be one of the films that I've probably seen the most at this point.
2: That's really cool. Yeah, I uh, had a similar thing. Like I probably saw this when I was, you know, probably seven, eight, nine years old. Uh, But it didn't really stick with me. Um, but I think I probably saw it. My grandma probably showed it to me after watching the African queen. She's like, Oh, you think this guy's cool? Well, let's watch, you know, some of his other movies. And so I remember, you know, this one I, I saw when I was younger, uh, but it wasn't until I was in high school and my best friend at the time and I, uh, they had just come out with the, that AFI list. And, uh, we started going through the list and, you know, this was high up there. And so we, uh, that's when I watched it and really that's when it really stuck with me. And, and probably at that point, like it was mostly the romance stuff that, you know, uh, I really hung on to and, you know, thought it was just so sweet and romantic and, um, (laughs) but, but then, you know, later, later on, as I started really diving into film and learning more about it, um, and, and actually when I watched it again last night, sitting there and like, Taking notes on it, really picking up on things I hadn't noticed before, even though I'd seen it, you know, a half a dozen times.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to have this kind of relationship with a movie where you watch it so much that it sort of becomes a very different thing than when you first saw it.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. And maybe that's another
1: reason why you can think of Casablanca as a cult movie, because it just gets kind of revisited over and over again throughout the decades. But to your point about the romantic angle, this is something that's always, maybe not when I was a kid, but definitely by the time I was in like my late teens, I've always been really perplexed by <laughs> the the way that people talk about this as like one of the great romantic
2: films of all time right. it's
1: like what these yes. people don't even know each other
2: yeah yeah <laughs> oh no believe me I mean as a you know almost 40 years old uh, I would never consider this to be one of the great romances but you know as you know as a 15 year old I'm like oh it's so sweet oh my gosh I wish I wish my love you know my life could be like this
1: Yeah. It's, it's funny how you watch romantic relationships or even just sexual relationships in movies as a kid. And you think like, okay, this is what it is. And then you get older and you're like, whoa, (laughs) it is not like that. (laughs) And in this case, thank God, because I mean, the whole thing is around this love triangle. And it's like, Rick falls in love with Ilsa but they it seems like they know each other for like five minutes and he doesn't know anything about her and my favorite scene in the movie is one of the flash or maybe one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the flashback to when they're in Paris and they're sitting down drinking champagne and in rapid fire suggestion he says to her like who were you and what did you do and what did you think? And it's, it's like, that's not a way you have a conversation with someone. He's just like firing questions at her. Doesn't really want them to be answered. And she just kind of smiles and says, Oh, we agreed. No questions. And to me, it's, it's just so unromantic because it's like, I don't care who you actually are. But at the same time, I've also always had this thing with Ingrid Bergman where I love her. I think she's an incredibly talented actress, but I don't think she's somebody who has like, while I think she's very physically beautiful, I don't think she gives off a lot of natural sex appeal.
2: No, no, you're right and
1: there. So there is this weird kind of asexuality to Casablanca that is not true of a lot of other 40s movies. I mean, if you think about anything with Carol Lombard, it's like you put Carol Lombard in a movie and it's like, yeah, okay, I get why everybody falls in love with this character. Or somebody like William Powell, it's your Cary Grant. It, it's like, it's there. Right. And in this, I feel like the only person who has an active sex life is Claude Rains, and it's because, <laughs> because he's, he's forcing he's it. He's manipulating all <laughs> these poor women, which the movie like sort of turns into a joke, which, yeah. which is a whole thing. It, it, it is,
2: yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that in a minute. That last night was the first time like that really stuck to me. I'm like. Oh, this guy's a piece of oh, shit. Yeah. Well,
1: <laughs> he's an opportunist. Right. We right. could talk about we'll talk about him in a minute. But <laughs> I just it it is so weird to me to watch the more times I watch this movie, the more I feel like it's just so sexless in such a weird way that I mean I I also really love Paul Onreid and think that he Is way more handsome than Humphrey Bogart, but here is sort of watered down a bit, which I think they did on purpose because they didn't want him to like you, you have to, for the film to work, you have to get why she wants to be with Rick and feel the pain of that separation at the end. But, like, Victor Laszlo is kind of the superior person.
2: <laughs> oh, 100%. Well, in in, in uh, When Harry Met Sally, they make a whole thing about that. Like, obviously, Victor Laszlo, like, he's the one she should be with because he's the, you know, the, the, the better man, blah, blah, blah. But, he's also
1: hotter. He's got that dashing scar. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, that's super cool. Well, okay, so... Uh, something I noticed last night when I think it's when Victor and Ilsa are going to uh, the uh, Claude Rains's um, office, like the morning after they arrive uh, yeah. for their interview. They are she's wearing like this all white thing. With the stripes. You're right. But it's it's is she wearing pants? I thought she was I... wearing pants and to and I'm, you know, I'm the last person who cares about or comments on uh, what anyone is wearing let alone a woman. But I thought that was interesting. That really jumped out at me because you're thinking, "Okay, 40s movies like you a, a lot of times we see these women like, uh, Hollywood is showing us this is what a woman's supposed to look like. And, you know, she's a homemaker and wears the dress and blah, blah, blah. Does her hair and makeup and yada, yada, yada. And I completely agree with you. It's like a this is a completely sexless film. But do you think maybe it's because, and maybe this is deeper than the film wants to go, but is it because uh, especially Ilsa and Victor are so preoccupied w- with trying not to die, you know, from the fucking Nazis.
0: Yeah. I,
1: so I do think that this is a complicated question that pops up throughout world war two movies, which is this idea of how personal drama relates to national drama or international drama. And how do our personal relationships affect us having to go away to war or being arrested and sent to a concentration camp. And I would say in general, European films are able to present this sense of sexuality and romantic passion as not necessarily being divorced from the international struggle happening at the same time. Mm. And they're able to show how sometimes people have to make choices. I mean, for whatever reason, a movie that's popping to mind is this French film called The Last Train, where Romy Schneider plays this upper-class Jewish refugee who is trying to escape through rural France on a train with a lot of other people, who are leaving villages in the north of France because of the Nazi occupation. And she happens to run into Jean-Louis Trintignant, who is made to look the least attractive that he's probably ever looked in his life. And like, (laughs) they make him look frumpy somehow, (laughs) but the two of them, like he has a wife and children who he's separated from by the different way that people are sort of organized into trains. It's like, women and children, especially pregnant women and old people or sick people are put into one train and men and, you know, healthy teenagers are sort of put by themselves. And so he encounters her and they develop this really passionate relationship, but they both know that it has to end. And so that is one of many examples, but I do think there are a lot of films that show the importance of that political struggle while not diminishing people's feelings yeah. because I think something that's really telling is the way I forget who says it I think it's maybe it's Victor Laszlo who says it where he talks about how he's still human and he's not just this political figure and he still has feelings yeah. and In a way, I think the casting works against Victor Laszlo's character because Paul Onreid is, I think for me and probably a lot of people watching the film, more appealing in some ways or more dashing than Humphrey Bogart. But the way that they talk about him in the dialogue is that he's much older than her Mm -hmm. when they don't appear to be that different age-wise. And so I think if you had like some professor looking actor in his late fifties as her husband, it would be a whole different story. But now it just feels like, because, you know, she has that great scene where she talks about how she thought that her admiration for him was love. And she really looks up to him and that dialogue all makes it seem like he is this much older figure who just has like different generational concerns maybe than she does and a whole different life experience. But like when you see them together, they're, they look like they're just about the same age yeah, or a, yeah. maybe like seven or eight years apart max. And so it just kind of, it's like, well, why is there if they're both so physically attractive, why does their relationship seem so sexless?
2: Yeah. <laughs> like, well, okay. So, uh, two things. One, uh, you know the the original casting. Now this is interesting because I, I, I thought, okay, maybe the original casting like their idea he was going to be older, but n- no, not not such was the case. So they originally wanted Ronald Reagan as Rick. Uh, they wanted Dennis Morgan as Victor, uh, and they wanted Ann Sheridan or Hedy Lamar as Ilsa. And, I think he would have been great. Oh, 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 I I think so too. Um, and <laughs> I, I love I love Dennis Morgan too. But, uh, I mean, he's, he's not as cool as, uh, uh, uh oh crap, brain fart, uh, as Paul on Yeah. Paul on
1: Yeah. And I think I, so I am not the sort of person who typically sits around and thinks like, how would the movie be different right. if this person had been cast instead but maybe because I've seen this movie so many times and I've spent a lot of time thinking about what its problems are, if you cast Hetty Lamar instead of Ingrid Bergman, you wouldn't have to change the dialogue at all. Yes. And there would be such a different level of sex appeal and sexual charisma and... I, I think that would make it feel like a very different sort of film.
2: I agree. Now, now speaking to the, the sexlessness of the movie, could that be just an American thing, a Hollywood thing? Because like, you, yeah. like we were talking about at the beginning, uh, this was just another studio film. They were cranking out, you know, it was just, okay, we're going to, you know, this is scheduled for this date to come out and, uh, it's just going to happen. That's just part of the slate. Um, and it's not going to be anything. But can I mean again? I, I'm with you. I don't really, you know, sit around and reimagine films. What if? But can you imagine this being made in Europe? Uh, how much uh, I'm, I'm like hotter or or sexier? I, I don't want to say it would be sexier, but they obviously wouldn't, uh, you know, shove uh, the the sex and just give it some this whitewashed romance uh they wouldn't shove the sex part of it under the rug and 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 pretend it wasn't there
1: yeah i i think from what i was reading at some point there was supposed to be the flashback paris sequence was supposed to be longer and was supposed to imply that they had a sexual relationship but you know the production code was clutching their pearls and so that, that didn't happen <laughs> but even if it had happened it would be weird I mean I think there are certain movies from that period where you do get a sense like literally any Cary Grant movie you're like yeah everybody in this movie including all of the men would like to bang Cary Grant <laughs> I mean, the same thing is true of certain actresses. Like earlier, I said Carol Lombard, although she definitely was in a lot of non sexy films. Right. Uh, Henny Lamar is another great example that we talked about. So I do think there are actresses, Kim Novak. Oh,
0: God, like, yeah.
1: There are so many actresses who I think do have that quality. And maybe sometimes the quality is a little bit neutered by things like script and editing. And in general, I would say Hollywood did try to water that down quite a bit. I mean, if you look at, at poor Rita Hayworth, it's yeah. it's like it explodes out of some of the films and no amount of editing <laughs> will, will get rid of it. Right. But here it's, it's almost like they went out of their way to make it, as sexless as possible and so I don't want to keep harping on this because I don't think every film has to be sexy and there are many great World War II movies that are definitely not I mean if you think about something like Brasson's A Man Escaped which I write about in my book there's nothing remotely sexy that happens in there and it's a masterpiece Mm. so it's not that like I need every film to be like this it's just more that it's so popular and it's so popular for being this powerful love story that it just makes me scratch my head. Like what? Like I almost want to just survey a random bunch of mainstream movie goers and like, like those people who go uh, to the Brattle or whatever theater yeah, it was yeah. in Boston. And when they leave, after they've had a drink or two say like, okay, what did you enjoy about the romantic subplot? <laughs> like what about that? For you? <laughs> yeah,
2: that, that would totally, uh, I would, God, how funny would that be? You'd have this group of people sitting around thinking this is the most romantic movie in the world. And then you throw that at them after a couple shots and they're thinking, ah, oh, we totally flipped their life upside down. Um, <laughs> Okay, so let's let's talk about um, the character of Rick here for a second. So uh, Rick, he was uh, he ran guns uh, in Ethiopia. He fought fascists in Spain, um, and that now he's just kind of not necessarily hiding out, but he has quit uh, life essentially. And he's in Casablanca. He has this uh, club that he's opened up, which by the way, uh, seems like a totally cool club that I would be at all the time. Uh, the best, just the best, uh, especially if Dooley Wilson's there singing every night. Um, and he's got early on we we really learn uh, how or who his character is, and so he meets up with you know this woman that he's probably slept with, and she says, "Well, I see you tonight," and he. <laughs> He goes, I never make plans that far ahead. And immediately we know who this guy is. Um, And
1: And the best is she asks him, where were you last night? And he's like, it's so long ago. I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Like, what a dick. What an absolute dick. He really is a dick. And you wonder why, uh, you know, during the flashbacks, we get why Ilsa maybe fell for him. Uh, Obviously not his looks. Uh, but he was more romantic back then. Uh, but now, like, you know, it is interesting because, you know, it's implied that, OK, he, you know, he sleeps around with, you know, uh, patrons of the club. Uh, it's very I, I don't know. I just find that interesting.
1: I mean, when you think about it, he's a giant fucking baby. It like there's this guy who had enough bravery and political zeal to get involved in multiple anti-fascist conflicts. And then it's like he meets a woman, has an affair for maybe, what, two or three weeks?
2: Yeah, not even. Yeah, right.
1: And because she doesn't show up, his entire life is over? Like, come on, dude. I mean, we've all been through some awful breakups and... But it just like it's a little unbelievable to think that somebody who's like fresh off the the Spanish Civil War is that decimated by one relationship (laughs) by one like two week long relationship ending that he becomes depressed, stops being a good person, gives up any interest in politics and just wants to like rot in Casablanca Thank
2: you. <laughs> yeah. Louis has a great uh, line where he's uh, and we'll talk about Luke Louis here in a minute, because I, uh, although he is maybe a piece of shit, he's also my favorite character, but he has a great line when he's uh, intru- uh, introducing the, the Nazi captain around it says uh, Rick is completely neutral about everything. And like to, to be, that is um, you'll have to help me out with a word here. Is it uh, apathetic? Like he has, is is that the word I'm looking for? He's completely apathetic. Okay. Like totally apathetic. That's that to me, that is the most dangerous person that has no care in the world. Obviously that's just a front because we learn, okay, he does actually care because he ends up helping out and you know, he, he does. Does he love her? I don't know. Obviously he's lusting after Ilsa, but, like that to me an apathetic person someone if someone were to call me completely neutral about something that would be like a wake-up call for me that's scary
1: well it's interesting you say that because it's and I guess this is my sort of frustration with the way that Hollywood shaped the script which is it was pretty rare to have an American who would actually leave the U S and go to Spain and go to Ethiopia and fight. And so it's especially hard for me to imagine that that person then becomes totally apathetic just by one short relationship ending. (laughs) I do think though, this is why it's such a powerful piece of propaganda is because from basically 38 too early into 1942 the vast majority of americans are apathetic about the war mm. and like looking back on it it's terrifying to think that there are all of these millions of people who don't care about fascism because it's not at their front door
2: right yeah. and
1: well. th- yeah that's i think one of the reasons like when i so last year i finished and basically rewrote a lot of the book and when it was complete and I sent off the manuscript, I kind of thought to myself, well, this is done and now I'm never gonna wanna write or talk about World War II movies ever again. (laughs) But like I realized within a week, like, no, it's still my favorite thing to talk about. And this is (laughs) this is part of why. And part of why I think so many of them still resonate is because those of us with more extreme political views, whether you're conservative or you're leftist, I think there's a lot about some of them that still resonate today where you're kind of horrified at how indifferent so many Americans are. <laughs> yes. Yes. So many different political issues. And that's one of the reasons that I think Casablanca is still powerful because what like, there are so few American characters in the film. Rick is one of the only ones. And also what, Bogart is one of the only American actors, which I think is another really important part of casting that gives it this really incredible depth and mm. realism. But it's like the key American, the person who is here showing you what it means to be an American is like, well, I'm kind of apathetic and I kind of don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, Nailed it.
2: It's still true. <laughs> yeah. Ex- well, yeah. Watching it last night, I was like, holy shit, because I haven't watched it in, I don't know, three or four years Uh before uh, our previous president was elected. And so sitting here thinking, oh, my God, for the past four years, uh I've known so many people who have just, who, you know, it doesn't, you know, they don't realize their privilege or whatever, and it doesn't affect them. So why should they put up a fight or say anything and that struck me so hard last night. And I, so this is a movie uh, I do. I'm a crier in movies and I, and, I and one of the, and one of the, uh, probably the, the most tears I shed last night was when
1: they sang uh, the Marseille. Oh, they sang. Yeah, <laughs>
2: man. Like, because for, for as long as I can remember, uh, I've considered myself a punk. And so it's been, fuck Nazis, basically my entire life. And I've fought against that. And, I mean, last night, I just... I, I wanted to fucking put my fist through the wall and say, fuck yes, fuck these people. Um, and But I, it just affected me so much last night. And I realized uh, how relevant this movie is in that way.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that's also why a lot of world war two films have resonated with me. And I think continue to resonate so many decades after the war is ended because many of them are all about this clear line between right and wrong. Hmm. And there is a sense of catharsis because even in the more complicated movies, and to be fair, I and I explain this a lot in my introduction. My my book is specifically interested in exploring the non-mainstream movies, which don't present the same kind of sense of black and white morality. Yeah, I, I think even those murkier movies. I don't know if it's just because we don't live in a vacuum and films aren't made in vacuums. It's almost impossible to watch these movies and not just fucking hate all of the Nazi characters, even in movies where they're presented sympathetically, like something like jump here. Melville's, uh, silence of the sea mm-hmm. where you have the great Jess Franco actor, Howard Vernon showing up as this, one of the very first sympathetic Nazis in cinema and like you really like him and Howard Vernon is really charming and and genuine in the movie. But at the same time, you feel like this sort of sense of tragedy at the end because he, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen the film, it's, it's basically when the Nazis invade France, certain Nazi officers are sent to live with, middle to upper middle class French people who have the space in their houses. So it's like they're kind of occupying people's homes Mm. and this father and adult daughter who have their home basically occupied by Howard Vernon, their form of resistance is to not speak a single word to him. And the entire course of the film is basically he, comes downstairs at night after dinner when they're kind of sitting by the fire and he talks to them and they don't respond, but they come to learn that he's cultured and intelligent and really well read. And is this not just this kind of brutal fascist that they expected he would be, but he's somebody who has these misguided ideals about the greater good that the war can serve And at the end of the film, he comes to realize what is actually going on. And I don't think it's stated directly, but you get the sense that he learns about concentration camps Mm. and the plan for genocide. And he's just totally disheartened and has had all of his kind of ideals smashed. And so he requests a change of... uh, the word is escaping me right now, whatever his station is, he asks to be restationed to the Eastern front where it's pretty much guaranteed that you'll die if if you go there. So that's how the film ends. And you're like, Oh, even the sympathetic Nazi is like being swept into this fascist machine of death. Yeah. And so I think why Casablanca and movies like that are popular is because we feel this sense of like, here is this right-wing horror that is going to be defeated at some point, whether it happens specifically in this movie or not, like we know it's going to end.
2: Right. Yeah. That's uh, you. you know, bringing that up. So, uh, I don't know, last month uh, I had John Hertzberg on the show and, uh, we were talking about deep end and one of the movies I paired with deep end was the night Porter. Oh, and that is, uh, an interesting film because you it shows like you know Nazis are complete monsters, but then she uh, she realizes that and she's a victim to it. But there's also, I ain't talking about a sexy movie, but there's also this this like raw animal instinct that is uh, attracting her to him, and so I th- I think that's really interesting. And I mean it, at at the end of the movie I, I feel zero sympathy for him um, no. but it's really interesting you know that a, a European movie uh, compared to you know a an American movie which would normally be much more watered down
1: also I just had a thought can you imagine a 70s remake of Casablanca with Dirk Bogard as Rick <laughs> And Charlotte Rampling as Ilsa. It would be the sexiest thing ever. Oh, my God. Even if there were no sex scenes, it would still just be (sighs) dripping with sex appeal. Yes,
2: absolutely. Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) Night Night Porter is totally a good example of that. And I definitely included that in my book because you can't talk about European World War II art house movies without talking about the night Porter. It's actually, it's the, I don't know why it took me a minute to think of this. It's literally the cover of my book.
2: Oh, that's okay. That's what it is. I, for some reason I couldn't place it when I was at the McFarland website. I was like, what? Okay. Um, okay. Let's talk about Louis for a minute here. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's, I love, uh, you know, one, I love Claude Rains. So terrific. He's got, you know, a a different sort of charisma than uh, Humphrey Bogart um, that you wouldn't be afraid to approach him. You wouldn't think he'd be a complete asshole. Although Louis has this perpetual shit-eating grin on his face. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He's
1: a scoundrel. (laughs) Yeah, well,
2: he's a a total weasel. But that also, for me, I don't know about you, but that... I, I. listen, I realize he's a weasel and he's playing everybody, but that still makes him lovable to me.
1: Yeah, and I think he represents another really important character type in a lot of these movies is the opportunist. Yeah. And I think in this case, he's the opportunist with a heart of gold. Yes. And what's so interesting to me about the particular kind of list of character types here is you know you have the totally apathetic american you have the opportunistic frenchman
0: mm-hmm.
1: you have the resist the Czech resistance leader who is just like the, the apex of humanity is how yeah. he's presented yeah. basically and you don't and then you have a bunch of refugees pretty much yep but you don't have any characters, and you sometimes do in in other Hollywood films from this period, but in this one, you don't have any characters who are fascist sympathizers, which I think is really interesting. Mm. I mean, Claude Rains, he's never, an, in every line of dialogue where he's talking to Major Strasser or where he's talking about the Nazis, he's sneering at them, yes. and it's it's clear that he's always looking down at them and looking down at Vichy and the Vichy government, and which, if for some reason you don't know, is because I think they reference it, but I don't know they really explain it in the movie. Is the collaborationist government that was was working closely with the Nazis and that had their own separate policies of anti-Semitism, um, but it's like you can tell he looks down at all of that. And the reason that he's so opportunistic is because that's the most convenient way for him to survive. But it's like Conrad Veidt, I think is so perfectly cast as major Strasser, which I feel really bad saying because he, you know, is one of the greatest actors of German expressionism and German cinema in general. And I just, Every time I think about it, I feel so bad for those actors who, especially from Central Europe, so you know, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Poland, who escaped, came to the United States, and managed to find work in this really competitive environment. And most of them, including Conrad Veit, were only able to find work playing Nazis. Yeah. It's like, how depressing is that?
2: Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, uh, and he found more character work. But Peter Lorre, you know, he he oh, total. moved to America to escape uh, the Nazis, and here he is playing these um, creeps. And I I don't I don't know as much as I love Peter Lorre. um let's talk about a, a caricature. Um, but uh, well, I, I don't know what I was gonna say. But um, yeah, I, I think Louis Claude Raine's character is so. I look at him and Rick as two sides of the exact same coin. So, um, uh, Louie is, he's out. Well, one, they're both looking out for themselves. You know, Rick, I, I don't stick my neck out for anybody. Uh, but they're both looking out for themselves and essentially boil it down. Just trying to survive. Um, and Rick, you know, wanting, you know, he doesn't care if he dies, but they're just trying to keep their head above water right now. Um, and so Louie, he's out there. He's just he's sucking up to everybody, trying to not even really trying, but he's he's just pleasing everybody. Whereas Rick, he doesn't care about anybody but himself. And he makes that apparent. It's, it's very obvious. But they're, uh, you know, they're so similar in that in that way that they're just looking out for themselves.
1: And they riff off of each other so well. So I mean, well, I think Louis is maybe the best character in the film, and I don't know if it's just because he gets the most robust dialogue or because Claude Rains is shameless about stealing scenes from people. <laughs> but if I had to pick one favorite scene in the movie, it's, it's probably it's probably that scene <laughs> towards the end of the movie when... He is, uh, he started this raid on Rick's and <laughs> basically the purpose of the raid is because there's gambling at the establishment. Right. And he says in this totally deadpan voice, I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is occurring here. And a second the later, guy. a waiter walks by and says, sir, your here win-ings. Your win-ings. And he puts and without another word.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, then that's the one thing, you know, I, I wonder if a lot of people, um, I mean, not not you know cinephiles or or cineast, what you know, whatever, but like the you know somebody who might consider themselves a movie fan, but have you know maybe avoided this because oh it's supposed to be one of the greatest things, um, or it's you know too serious or whatever. It's actually really fucking funny. There are so many funny <laughs> scenes in this. I think Dooley uh, Doo- uh, Wilson is that his last name? Yeah. Um, his my so uh, my favorite line is that Claude Rains one where he gets his winnings but my second favorite line is uh, it's during a flashback and it's uh, Sam and Rick and Ilsa and um, (laughs) Sam's they're at the bar and Sam or uh, uh, Rick is pouring the champagne he's like you know he's got six more bottles of that and and, you know we got to drink it all uh, before the Nazis show up and Sam raises his glass and he goes oh, this should take the sting off of the occupation.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The other, there there are, and so this is one of the things that makes me genuinely love Casablanca and want to rewatch it is all of these little side characters who don't have a ton of screen time. Definitely Sam is one of those, but most of them, were actual European refugees and my favorite story and sort of to, to your point earlier is about how affecting the scene is the scene where they basically have this like sing off. Yeah, <laughs> it's, right. like, it's like the Nazis singing watch on the Rhine versus the Europeans uh, involved in the resistance or at least anti-Nazi Europeans singing the Marseillaise and apparently when they were filming that scene, a lot of the people in the, sh- in the shot, like not the major characters, but a lot of the people were actually crying because mm. they had recently come to Hollywood mm. from Europe. And it's just, I mean, it, it's populated with so many great european actors who would go on to mostly become character actors in hollywood films at least until some of them could go back to europe but like you have people like s.z sakal who plays oh my god he is my second favorite character probably after louis he just he has one of those smiles that's infectious yes and he's in um the name of it is escaping me he's he's in this really great Barbara Stanwyck movie Christmas called Christmas in Connecticut. <laughs> Connecticut. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, every time he's on screen, you just have to smile. You can't help yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, great. Well,
2: myth. well yeah. And that, that's Sydney green street also in Christmas in Connecticut.
1: Oh yeah. And I think a really interesting, like, so earlier when I said people are probably going to get mad at me for saying that Bogart's not the best <laughs> actor, I think if you watch Casablanca and I do like his performance in Casablanca and I think it's very tonally appropriate. It's, it's exactly what it needs to be, how sort of like laconic it is. But if you watch Casablanca back to back with the Maltese Falcon, which it's almost the same exact cast. I mean, Sydney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre are both scoundrels (laughs) in both films. But because Bogart has to carry so much of the weight of the script in Maltese Falcon and has so much screen time of on his own, you can see the difference in in terms of
2: just kind of the the talent level. Yeah, yeah, and, that's a really great point. My God, I never thought about that.
1: Well, it's it's always been really frustrating to me because I love film noir. I've written about it a lot and. People always talk about things like the Maltese Falcon as being, you know, one of the greatest film noir titles of all time. And it's like, OK, have you actually watched the Maltese Falcon? <laughs> it's actually kind of boring. Yeah. And it's it's a like a great story, but it comes before most of like it doesn't look like a film noir at all. It doesn't have any of that expressionist influenced cinematography. Oh, and yeah. The reason it's great is because Sydney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre it's, are in it.
2: Oh, that, yeah! It's the best parts of the movie are when Peter Lorre is on it, on the screen,
1: with his like coded gay character. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so good. But I, I think. To me, it's just such an important example of how certain actors are incredible when they're used the right way, mm. but not everybody can carry a film on their own.
2: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. Yeah, I think this uh, Casablanca is all about... Um, you know, I I don't know if you'd called it an ensemble cast. Maybe in, oh, 20, he- in 2021, looking back, you look at all these great character actors, it's obviously an ensemble cast, uh, even though Peter Lorre, you know, he's got maybe half a page of dialogue and he's we only see him for, you know, less than five minutes of the movie. Uh, uh, but th- they're all memorable is the thing yeah. I think and then and, and going back to the script Koch's uh, you know his rewrites his uh, finishing the script I mean obviously look at all the the lines of dialogue that are quoted endlessly nowadays I mean take it back and it's not just the line readings it comes from the script and you know being a writer you know I, I think words on the page, uh, personally are extremely important and that's where it begins. And uh, you know, obviously the actors and the director do with it what they will. but that's where it starts and and I go back to the script, I mean, it's 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 uh, it's an iconic script alone.
1: It is, but I do think it's so fascinating to me how much a scene can change based on delivery or like even and even with Casablanca I think some of the most iconic lines like here's looking at you kid were not in the script and were just like things that Bogart said on set and they were like wait yeah let's put this in
2: (laughs) yeah yeah that's interesting for anyone that didn't know he was teaching Ingrid Bergman uh, how to play poker in between takes and he would say that and so that's why they kept it in I think that's really cute very very funny um, but
1: it, so I think it also sort of highlights what we were talking about earlier about how he just is this really like somebody who has a lot of presence and a really strong personality. Yeah. And that's what made him a star, not necessarily his ability to deliver specific performances. But it is <laughs> it's also interesting to see him in some of his darker roles. Where you're like, yeah, he kind of wants to murder people sometimes, doesn't he? <laughs> he's got a dark side,
2: yeah, totally. Well, yeah, well, and on the opposite side, you have uh Victor Laszlo, who is like the greatest human being in the world, like he's the picture perfect, uh, um, image of humanity. Where you know, towards the end, when he's uh, he's gonna go to the meeting. And Ilsa wants to say something to him. He says, uh, you don't even have to say it, I believe. And he goes away. Oh, my God. Like, that is what a man. Oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because their conversation is paralleled. And to me, this is a sign of some great screenwriting. Their conversation is paralleled by the the sweet Romanian girl, uh, which is, it's just such a gutting scene. I mean, it's, it's not gutting because that's sort of Rick's turning point in the film when he decides to become a good person. Uh, so. Anina Brandel's character comes along and says basically that she wants to do the same sort of thing. Ilsa has done where she's married to someone and she wants to take care of them and do the right thing. But, will they forgive her an indiscretion? And it's definitely a different circumstance than the Ilsa-Victor-Rick love triangle, but I think the question is still one that kind of resonates through the film, is like, can these men handle the fact that the woman that they're in love with has slept with someone else? Yes, <laughs> That's yeah. That's a question.
0: Yeah, that... Kind of
2: well, yeah, well, it is. It is gross, but you think about uh, what? What? What year is this? Forty. Forty-two. Forty-two. Okay, you know, uh, I always like to think about you know what these people are saying or what they're wearing or whatever's happening on screen in relation to the year it was made. So this was made in either 41 or early 42. I can't remember, but I think early 42. And I mean, you know, you think about that. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, human beings are human beings and have been human beings since we came to, uh, but I was like seeing that, you know, sneak up in these kind of old classic Hollywood movies, Uh, I I always find fascinating.
1: Oh, me too. And I think that's something that is really distinguishing about some of those pre-code movies is the way (laughs) in which characters don't judge each other for sexual indiscretions. And I think by by the mid-40s, that pretty much goes away, whereas what's what's interesting to me is that films made before the end of the war and especially films made during the depression in the thirties is you have all of these characters in, in Hollywood movies who don't judge each other because they're all experiencing the effects of poverty. Mm -hmm. And when that changes into the fifties with this sort of perception of, everyone is now living in comfort and there's been this economic boom. You see this like weird shift in the opposite direction where in a lot of Hollywood movies, people are much more judgmental. I mean, you get all those great Douglas Sirk melodramas where people are just so cruel to each other and they're not as understanding of, Oh, maybe you've been through this, horrible financial experience that's left you destitute or this war trauma. Instead, it's like you put a toe out of line and bothered to be human. So now we're going to attack you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I love older musicals. And so looking at, uh, you know, the musicals between uh, Warners and then RKO pictures where like Warners were obviously uh, recognizing that, there's a great depression happening in our country. Uh, and RKO was putting out, you know, the ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire movies, uh, pretending that everything's hunky dory. There's nothing sad happening. Uh, <laughs> but you look at those Warner's, those early Warner's movies. And, uh, again, think about the, when these movies are coming out and they are acknowledging like, uh, uh what's the, uh, James Cagney, is that footlight parade? Yeah. Um, God, oh that, oh, man, one of my favorites where it's like these guys are everybody is like knocking on Death's door because they're they're all losing their jobs and they're all uh, losing their homes and they're all fighting to get into this one show and I mean the like it, it's a it's a great little piece of history watching that thing.
1: Oh yeah, and Speaking of that, and I know this is like semi... Well, it's not really off topic. Uh, On the same kind of line is... Speaking of Cagney, is Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yes, yes, yes. Also from 42 and also directed by Michael Curtiz. And I think is such a fascinating historical musical Mm. that it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And quite possibly, it just... Maybe my favorite. I don't know. I I also like a lot of musicals, especially from that period. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to pick one favorite. But I just, if you, so this was almost one of my choices for our recommended movies.
2: Oh, interesting.
1: Because I think if you watch Michael Curti's double feature of Casablanca and Yankee Doodle Dandy, you which is also set during the war in sort of a roundabout way yeah you get such an interesting kind of parallel commentary on what it was like to be alive during the war yep so even though that's not one of my official recommendations if you haven't seen yankee doodle dandy you have got to watch it
2: oh yeah oh my god absolutely fabulous movie um Well, should we transition? Is there anything else you'd like to talk about uh, on Casablanca? I mean,
1: I'm pretty sure we could talk about Casablanca for like 12 more years, but...
2: I I agree, and I I was actually a little worried, uh, not so much with you uh, talking about it, but um, thinking, you know, what do you say about a movie that everyone says, oh, it's one of the greatest of all time? Uh, But I I, I thought this was fascinating, Um, and it's always... Uh, I think it's great to go back and uh, look at those listen i I love horror movies I love art house movies I love exploitation movies um, but I also love classic Hollywood love classic Hollywood movies because they're like a warm blanket right but you go back and watch those warm blanket movies and s- start to uh, pick it apart just a little bit not not to uh, hate on it but really look at maybe what they're saying, what's going on, who's saying what, who's doing what. Um, It's really interesting. And so that's what I did this time, this uh, upon this rewatch of Casablanca. And uh, again, makes me love it even more if that was possible.
1: Yeah, I think I tend to have this approach where if I'm thinking or writing about a movie that is disliked, I take this kind of, underdog mentality and consider like okay why do I think this is important why do I think it deserves attention but if I'm writing about a movie that's really acclaimed it's usually more interesting for me to think about why do I think this has had mainstream success versus how do I actually feel about the things it's trying to do because I think a lot of these movies You know, some of them are great masterpieces, which, you know, I think Yankee Doodle Dandy totally is. Yes. But then there are movies like Casablanca, which I get why people love them and I love them too. But I think from a kind of rational filmmaking perspective, they have issues. And it's always interesting for me to think about that in terms of classic Hollywood, because i think the issues tell you so much about american life at that particular time mm, yeah and something like casablanca in particular tells you so much about what americans thought about the war at that particular time mm. and so you know i i think if only for and, and maybe not if only for that reason but a lot of these classic hollywood movies from the 30s and 40s say so many important historical things about the great depression struggles with fascism even at home uh that really interesting period where it seemed like the country was about to become a lot more leftist with the rise of unions and a lot of fdr's public policies and so i think that's why i will kind of never tire of talking about these sorts of movies
2: yeah yeah oh well, um, yeah it's it's fascinating uh just thinking about what was happening in uh the world but you know in our country at that time uh is for me you know and obviously you're you're a history fan uh not just like a movie history fan you obviously you know love reading uh about history in general and i think uh you know so many people do and uh i've i for one you know that was always um, a, a big thing for me, you know, like uh, past shows that I've done, where I tell the stories behind movies, how they got made. Um, you know, because uh, I think it's fascinating uh, to look at what was happening uh, when, you know, even for instance, like when Maniac Cop was made, what was going on. Um, oh, yeah, you know, stuff like I, I, I think it's endlessly fascinating at any period in American history.
1: Yeah, I have definitely gotten some criticism about my commentary tracks. And I think there are some people on the Internet who intensely dislike me because I never do, which is fine. I think it probably means I'm doing something right. (laughs) Yeah, of course. But I think there are people who like those really traditional commentary tracks where you just talk about the film's production history, like... Who built this set piece? And Mm -hmm. where was the shot? And that stuff really does not interest me very much. So I tend to do a lot of research around those sorts of broader topical themes. Like, you know, if we're going to talk about Maniac Cop, it's like, okay, well, why why is this movie so fixated on violence in New York? Like, what was actually happening in the year it was made? And that's why I think I often gravitate towards writing about movies that are concerned with things like war and violence, because I think it says a lot about the way a culture is dealing with something. And it's funny because I don't actually like straightforward war movies. I mean, like Casablanca is not really a war movie. It it is, but it's, it's not, it's only like, it's about drama between people. Yep. And it's not set at a front, for example. Yep. So it just is fascinating to me that I think World War II is probably the only war that just has dozens, if not hundreds, of movies that are set during the war or involve the war in some way, but are not actual war films. And you can't really say that about, like, the Korean War or the Vietnam War right. or even World War One. It's like most of those movies are about the actual war and not just things that happened while the war was going on somewhere else. Right. Which I find so fascinating.
2: That is very fascinating. Well, um, okay, so uh, let's get into our picks here. Was there – I had mentioned that I sort of went with uh, a theme of uh, war – Uh, movies uh, is there a theme that you went with here
1: this was really hard for me because my brain loves a theme and (laughs) I was tempted to go in many different directions so I just decided to choose three totally different movies related to people who made Casablanca.
2: Oh, perfect. Well, okay. That makes me feel a little better uh, because I was a little worried about, uh, because I think at least one of my movies is maybe two of them show up in your book. Uh, I guess we'll see, but uh, let's, uh, let's get into these. Let me hear your first recommendation here.
1: So my first recommendation, I'm going to go chronological, um, is In a Lonely Place, which Hmm. is from 1950. It's one of the greatest film noir movies ever made and is the total opposite to Casablanca in every possible way, except for the fact that it stars Humphrey Bogart in what I think is his greatest performance. And if you haven't seen In a Lonely Place, he plays this alcoholic novelist who has been badly traumatized by his experience in the war. And so it's sort of like, think of it as a sequel to Casablanca. (laughs) Not, not really, (laughs) but sort of, and he's struggling to write a new book, which his publisher is sort of pushing him to do. And at the same time, women are starting to be murdered around where he lives. And the movie makes it very ambiguous about whether or not he might actually be the killer. And maybe he has these sort of drunk blackouts and doesn't realize he's doing it. Maybe he just is kind of hiding things from us as the audience. And he meets this woman in, the apartment complex where he lives played by Gloria Graham speaking of people who just exude sex appeal yeah. although she could that she could never play Ilsa's character it no. just wouldn't be believable no no, no. <laughs> but she is an incredible talent in her own right so he meets her they fall in love and it's a really really tragic movie because it's sort of about the way that we idealize relationships and then we realize that maybe we don't actually know the people that we're in love with and that maybe our partners are hiding things from us and so if if anybody I mean it was made in 1950 so I should shouldn't have to worry about spoilers yeah. but if you haven't seen it and for some reason it seems like a lot of people have not seen this film
2: well I saw it for the first time like a year ago so
1: oh yeah so see if, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to give away the ending, but basically it's sort of a weird inverted film noir where you don't have this like private detective trying to solve a crime, but the central mystery is sort of like, is the protagonist a serial killer or not? Right. And the script is just incredible. I mean, Nicholas Ray is one of the greatest American directors. Yeah. Gloria Graham gives an amazing performance uh, and it has some of the most romantic scenes ever while at the same time being a really, I think, complicated and interesting depiction of a relationship that sort of slides into abuse.
0: Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, he, so he, what's his name? Dixon, is that his character's Dixon name? Dixon Steel. Yeah, and Dixon Steele. What a great character the, name.
1: So the book, which I think was written by Dorothy Hayes, is very different than the film. And if you like the movie, I would also encourage that you read the book, which people, I, like, I always hear people talk about, and movies about serial killers is something that comes up A lot in my work as well. I mean, I don't think I've mentioned this actually, but speaking of Casablanca and Peter Lorre, my first book is on Fritz Lang's M. So I've done, you know, a lot of historical research about early serial killers and something that comes up in a lot of pop cultural criticism is women complaining that only men want to watch serial killer movies and... (laughs) Why is it a subject that we keep returning to? But you have all of these really great, and I'm sorry, this is—it has nothing to do with Casablanca.
2: No, it's totally fine.
1: You have all these great female writers like Patricia Highsmith, who wrote Strangers on a Train and The Talented of Mr. Ripley. And In a Lonely Place is another example of this where it's this like genuinely really nasty book about a serial killer that's so much nastier than the movie. Mm. So it's not... Not
2: just men. That, that's interesting. Well, okay. So I was just uh, okay. Two things. One, uh, think of uh, Dixon. Uh, I kind of think of Dixon Steel. I looked at him as almost a uh, even more uh, kind of ground to a pulp Rick. Like th- yeah. this. This is Rick. You know, like eight, ten years later, um, who has just been beaten down even more, and he's he's still alive and grinding but just barely barely.
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and it's i think it's also a really great example of the sorts of much darker films being made in the years at the end of the war and after the war most of them are film noir that look at the effects of trauma and the ways in which it can turn people really violent. And definitely Nicholas Ray returned to that subject again in his films. And Fritz Lang, you know, just can't get enough of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, so just earlier today, I was uh, listening to your commentary for I Start Counting, uh, which I think would make an interesting double Within a Lonely Place as well.
1: Oh, yes. I mean... I Start Counting is another one of those movies that I just I don't understand why nobody seems to have heard of it. I mean, for me, it was definitely something that I a title that I came across when I was researching serial killer movies. And I'm so glad that there's that Fun City Blu-ray and that Jonathan let me do a commentary. But some of these movies that I think don't get as much attention as some of the mainstream examples have so many more interesting things to say about things
2: like violence. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. Well, especially those, uh, you know, uh, movies made in Europe. Um, you know, I think oh, yeah. in the, in the sixties and seventies are, uh, absolutely fascinating. <clears throat> okay. So in a lonely place, if yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's absolutely a must. And um, you want to be
1: brutally depressed by <laughs> a failed romance. <laughs> But it has some of the greatest lines of dialogue like that where he says that thing about how, like, I lived when she kissed me and I oh, died, yeah. left me. Oh,
2: yeah, it's good. Well, and and he so, yeah, they do that when they're in the car and what he has her repeat it to him. That's such a um, again, Humphrey Bogart, not sexy, but like that moment just seems really sexy to me for some reason
1: It is, and I think some of that has to do with the script and the chemistry between him and Gloria Graham but there is and this is if definitely they would make a great double feature but it's interesting because there are these parallel car sequences oh yeah in the flashback when Rick and Ilsa are in Paris there's a very very similar scene yeah in in a lonely place, but with him and Gloria Graham, and you're like, oh, this is dark.
2: <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, I, I also like in 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 a lonely place. She's she's driving, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
2: I I don't again I don't know why, uh, you know. that's just kind of, and I think that's Nicholas Ray, um, uh, just kind of flipping uh, stereotypes on their heads, saying. Um, because you always expect the man to be driving, right? I mean, God, even in 2021, which is sad, but, uh, yeah, Yeah. I, I, that was just, that scene in particular in the car is, is very memorable, sticks out in my head. Um, okay. So, uh, I did war films and my first one is, uh, Russian and it is from 1957. It's called the cranes are flying.
1: Oh. That's definitely in my book.
2: Okay. Um, and it's uh it's directed by Mikhail uh what Kalitazov? Is that how you say his name? Yes. Okay. And uh for anyone who hasn't seen this, uh, it's set during the German invasion of Russia during World War II. And uh you have these two young lovers, Veronica and Boris, uh, who are separated when Boris volunteers for the army. Their their draft notices are going around and and he really wants to go, but his his number hasn't been called yet, and so he ends up volunteering. Uh, and they had set a date, saying, "Okay, we're gonna meet down at the at the water at this time on this day." And she goes, and he's not there because he had volunteered and he's been called up to duty. And uh, so the attacks become more frequent and deadly uh, on this little uh, on this city. So Veronica moves to uh, is it, I think it's Siberia with boris's family and they start working in this like laundry uh joint uh and you know she's coping with the potential death of her fiance she doesn't know if he's they haven't heard from him is he dead is he alive um and it is
0: (laughs) brutal (laughs) it
2: is so brutal (laughs) and i mean talk about crying in a movie uh the end of this so there's okay two things i i Uh, find so much now I I consider myself a pacifist Uh, never in my life would I ever uh, volunteer or join or be forced to join the military so any movie or show that revolves around people being called up to active duty is extremely stressful for me so that alone I'm already like you know on level 11 Um, and so and the ending. Oh, so it there's two kind of similar uh, scenes, one where he's called up and she runs to where like they're doing a military parade where these new recruits are going off to battle or training or whatever it is. And she runs to this parade and she's going through the crowd looking for Boris. And it is so uh, stressful and I mean, heart break, like not breaking, like pulverizing just that moment. And then you kind of get that again at the end with her looking for him at a train station when he's supposed to be returning. I'm not gonna spoil the ending. Um and there's a, a final God, I mean, I got tears in my eyes already thinking about this, where with her flowers and she's handing them out and uh <laughs> I completely lost it and like started sobbing and i felt so stupid i was like this is a fucking movie what are you doing um but it's such a uh moving yet cathartic ending to this horribly stressful and tragic story um and again this is you know this was made by people who were experienced, so this is 1957 after the war, but made by people who experienced that shit firsthand. You know, kind of like "Come and See," uh, where you're watching this and you you know what you're watching is firsthand experience, and it is uh, oh man, uh, a movie that I want to go back to again and again, but can't. We'll need to give a couple years in between each viewing.
1: Yeah, it's, it's also an important movie because, and so this is definitely a big focus of my book is movies made by people who actually experienced the war and how that might differ from, you know, somebody in Hollywood who wasn't there, for example. But as I said earlier, I also intentionally look at films that go against the mainstream. And I think, The really important thing to remember about The Cranes Are Flying is that when it came out, it was pretty groundbreaking because the Soviet countries were encouraged to depict certain things in certain ways. Mm. And you were really limited about what you could actually make films about, especially if you were actually a Russian filmmaker. And here, he he being uh, Kalatazov, the the director, he basically showed how the lives of regular citizens were made absolutely miserable by the war. And that was something that filmmakers were not allowed to really explore before this film when a lot of the Soviet partisan films, the sort of mainstream version of Soviet war movies, it's you have all of these really two dimensional communists who are happy to serve in the war because it's their duty and they're making life better for their comrades at home. Whereas movies like this show these very kind of personal effects of the war without even really talking about politics in an overt way. But it's like, here's the story of this woman whose life is basically totally ruined just because her fiance was forced to go to war. Yeah.
2: It's brutal. It is so, so brutal, but uh, I mean, it is also beautiful uh, just to look at like it is, it is filmed. So, you know, I was, uh, I recalled, you know, a lot of Louis mall or even, I mean, Orson Wells uh, with the camera looking up a lot of times and uh, this one shot that for, for some reason has stuck with me where it's him after like their first meeting or something. Uh, he, uh, Boris is running home up this winding staircase and the camera tracks not behind him, but follows him winding up. And I was trying to figure out how the hell they did it. But it I mean, it's 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 a beautiful, beautiful film uh, to look at, let alone the story. Uh, But yeah, anyways. Uh, Okay, let's get to your second one.
1: So my second one is another totally brutal film about (laughs) about the war Mm -hmm. made in the immediate years after the war. It's called Der Florene or The Lost One from 1951, directed by Peter Lorre, starring Peter Lorre, the only film he ever directed. And it is brutal. It's not not quite brutal in the same way as the cranes are flying. But basically, at this point, he got tired of being sort of forced into this character type in Hollywood and wasn't doing so well health wise, had some issues with drug addiction and decided to go back to Germany and see if maybe he could resume his career there. And so he made this movie called The Lost One, which is all about this doctor who is like an accidental serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also somebody who helps the Nazis. And so Lore's character is just this really kind of despicable unlikable protagonist who spends the entire movie wanting to commit suicide. And it's the whole thing is gorgeous, but it's shot in bombed out. uh, I think it's Frankfurt. Mm. And so you just have this like rubble and decimation everywhere. And the movie is sort of set between present day, which I think is supposed to be 1950 And then there are flashbacks to what he was doing in the war. And there's this really interesting subgenre called the rubble film, which I write about in my book. Um, And they're movies that are sort of like the German equivalent to Italian neorealism, except the state of German cinema, especially I should say West German cinema was really complicated because at the end of the war you have the allied powers who come in and just basically divide Germany up between them while they're trying to figure out how to best rehabilitate the country after the war. And so when German cinema is kind of cranked back up again in like 46, 47, it's really tightly controlled by Hollywood. And so a lot of the films have these kind of limited messages about the war. It's like, on the surface, a lot of them are like, well, this is really fucking miserable, and everyone we love is dead. All of our homes have been blown up. But we have to have this message of hope, because this is a a movie overseen by Hollywood. (laughs) Right. But The Lost One has no message of hope. And it just, it's like... If you want to watch a movie about what it's like to be depressed, (laughs) the lost one is the movie for you. But because it's Peter Lorre, who I think we often associate with being really charismatic and charming, it's very confusing to watch. And it's definitely would be an interesting companion piece to Casablanca because like in a lonely place, it is sort of an interesting look at like, here's where we were during the war in the early years of the war. And now here's where we are five years after the war when everything is fucking miserable. And a lot of what interests me from movies made at that time, especially some of the Italian neorealist films, uh, the lost one definitely. And some of the kind of edgier rebel films from Germany is a lot of them explore this idea that, okay, the war is over and fascism has been defeated, but that has not made anything better. Things are still terrible, which I just think is such, it's like, yes, it's obvious, but it's so easy, especially since we're decades removed from the war to think like, Oh, all we had to do was defeat the Nazis and now everything is fine. And so many of the more complex, non-mainstream movies from that time period are like, no, it didn't matter who won the war because everything's still terrible.
2: Right. Wow. That I didn't even I I had no idea he had directed a movie. So this uh, is a must seek out for me. That is fascinating. Yeah, I think another thing like uh, I mean, it if If you are able to you know watch these movies and and kind of relate uh, to where we are now, like obviously, uh, you know, we went through our country went through like four years of absolute trauma and Uh, You know, so many people thought, okay, on January 20th, we got a new president, so everything changed.
1: Everything's fine now. And everything's
2: fine now. Obviously not. Like, we're fucking still reeling and will be reeling for years, uh, not to be such a huge downer. Um, And I try not to think about that, uh, but that's the absolute truth. I think
1: about it all the time.
2: I mean, so do I. I try not to, but, like, how can you not, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I really struggled after Biden's presidency was announced the like weird, what was it like a week and a half later or something? Right. Um, because I just by that point was so exhausted and I felt, I didn't feel excited at all. And part of my brain was like, I should be like doing cartwheels in the street or something with, you know, with a face mask on, but still, (laughs) but I just like, didn't care. And, of course, I wanted him to win, but, I mean, I don't know that we need to get super into politics here, but, like, I have a lot of issues with this sort of liberal sense that, like, as long as things on the surface are fine, that means things are totally fine. Especially white liberals who, I'm sure, like both of us, who are incredibly privileged, it's like... That's why Casablanca is still so relevant because I think it's easy to see how people in those positions of privilege can just sink into selfish apathy, where it's like, well, as long as I'm not being sent to a concentration camp,
2: who cares? Exactly, that's exactly right. And and yeah, like I said, you know, I mean, I'm privileged, uh, incredibly privileged enough uh, to where I can, you know, take a day off and not have to think about it um yeah but you know i yeah anyways um
1: this is a, a very cheerful conversation <laughs>
2: yeah. well it, it is well i mean it again i think you know we spend you know people like you and i spend so much of our time watching movies and reading stories and reading history and uh i i think that's important uh Learning and and I think that makes you a better human being uh, because you learn uh, what and and you try to understand what other people are going through or have gone through um, or went through. And uh, I think that helps you grow as a human being. And I mean, that's the main reason I love movies and that's the main reason I love reading books, uh, because it it helps me grow as a human being. And, uh, and again, I, I realize that's, that's a very privileged, uh, point of view. Um, but again, that's, that's where I'm at, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to, you know, watch a movie like, uh, Casablanca and, uh, you know, pick things from it, uh, to help me grow as a human.
1: Oh, definitely. And I think for me, you know, I, Um, I guess you could say not neurotypical. And so growing up, it was often hard for me to understand other people's behavior
0: Hmm.
1: or why, especially people who seem to be quote unquote normal. Like if they did or said things that I didn't understand, it was really alienating for me. And so I think part of why I started watching so many movies is because it helped me kind of try to understand why people behave the way they do Mm. and why certain social conventions are the way they are. And so I think that's why, and I'm sure our conversation about Casablanca is a good example of this. It's sort of why I pick things apart, especially when it comes to human interaction, like love or romance, because it just, some of it seems kind of confusing to me or like yeah. incomprehensible at times <laughs> and so I think watching movies and definitely reading I tend to read more nonfiction than fiction but reading Same. a lot of historical narratives I think has helped me understand other people a lot better
2: yeah I we are uh simp- simpatico there um absolutely like I've uh you know as a as a kid and and as a teenager uh, and a young adult, even I felt uh, different and didn't belong, and therefore retreated into, you know, different forms of art, and uh, uh, that helped me again grow as a human being. Um, welcome to Cult Movies Podcast Therapy Session.
1: I know. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I love
2: it. It's great. I love it. Um, okay, so. Uh, my second pick. We're moving to Japan, uh, but during World War II, 1965. Seijun Suzuki's story of a prostitute, which I had hinted at last week talking to John Cribbs. Um, and I have you you've seen Story of a Prostitute, Sam? Yes. Um. So this is uh, again, like I said, set during World War II in Japan. You have this woman named Harumi. Uh, who travels up to uh, the Manchurian uh, province where she begins work at this kind of brothel for the local uh, army base, for the local soldiers. And she ends up falling in love with uh, one of these soldiers and carries on this secret affair with this guy uh, named Mikami. Uh, But his commanding officer has developed this um, like unhealthy and domineering obsession with, harumi and uh so this outpost where they're at is attacked uh mikami is wounded he's like out in the trenches and uh, harumi runs up to him and lays with him (laughs) and they are captured by the enemy and and taken to the this like weird tower castle thing and just left there um almost forgotten about by these soldiers as they march off and uh Mikami is, uh, you know, he, this is a great dishonor that he was captured and he wants to kill himself. He needs to die honorably. And so anyways, they, they get back to their original base and he is court-martialed because he was captured and didn't kill himself. And, uh, another, uh, I will say just a tragic ending. I won't tell you how it ends. Uh, but this was my first and so far only Suzuki film, uh, oh, absolutely gorgeous! I cannot wait to dig into more of his movies. Um, but again, it's it's not as uh, it wasn't as affecting as uh, Cranes for me, but it was still very touching. Uh, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. Um, and then there's this one moment, and this is my only note that I have written down. But this one moment in the movie where uh, she, they're kind of held captors in this, this tower thing. And she's singing this beautiful Japanese lullaby and uh the soldiers sitting around the fire down below start singing with her. And it's, it's sort of this fantastical moment, but it is so gorgeous and it is so dreamlike. And I was just sitting there like melting. It was so beautiful um and obviously meant uh, for, you know, this, and was showing you know peace in all this chaos there are these beautiful moments of peace and I mean it got me it got me so damn peaceful and then it brings you back uh, but it's a it's a gorgeous gorgeous film
1: yeah and it's another interesting example of what we were talking about earlier in terms of how movies like Casablanca try to show this kind of asexualized importance of choosing morals over feelings. Mm. Whereas story of a prostitute is all about sexual obsession basically. And and how the war interferes with that and like duty, things like (coughs) duty and honor and national identity clash with this really kind of turbulent relationship.
2: Yeah. And it's really fascinating thinking about, um, you know, maybe the, 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 Oh man, excuse me. The two, uh, Catherine Bigelow, uh, her recent uh, kind of military movies, uh, where it shows like men who are like put their duty and their honor above their personal lives. Um, and it's really fascinating thinking that this is 19 again, uh, you know, looking back at these older movies, 1965, Uh, It's always been a thing like that's always been uh, this kind of uh, dilemma. I don't I don't even want to call it a moral dilemma. This this dilemma that people feel between uh, duty to country and duty to either self or, uh, you know, a loved one, whatever. Uh, But it's it's very fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, Suzuki is a master
2: Okay, let's get to your third one here. My third one is actually
1: way more cheerful than anything we have talked about (laughs) so far. And I, I decided that because, so Michael Curtiz, who directed Casablanca, it baffles me why he's not a household name. I feel like a lot of those quote unquote golden age of Hollywood auteurs are names that regular people who like regular sorts of movies will often recognize. Right. And it just really kind of grinds my gears that a lot of the time, if, if somebody talks about Casablanca, it's like, well, who directed that? Yeah, right. It's like, all right, give the man a break. He directed d- dozens of movies, many of which are incredible. Like Mildred Pierce, Angels with Dirty Faces, Yankee Doodle Dandy, which we've already talked about, White Christmas, which is one of the greatest Christmas movies of all time. I watch it every year. Yep. And So it really pisses me off that he is so neglected. And I don't know if some of that is because he was this, you know, Hungarian director who kind of tried to assimilate into Hollywood, but that definitely happened a lot with people like Otto Preminger and Fritz long who are really celebrated and deservedly. So, but what I wanted to do was to suggest, uh, Curti's deep cut, <laughs> which is another one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time that my dad introduced me to. We started watching it almost every year. It's called we're no angels. Uh, it's from 1955. It stars Humphrey Bogart. And it's this absolutely delightful movie where it's basically Peter Ustinov, who is one of my favorite actors of all time, and Humphrey Bogart just like hanging out and making jokes. But the the plot is there are these three prisoners, Bogart, Ustinov, and Aldo Ray who are in the islands and escape from prison on Christmas Eve and go to this town in order to kind of hide out until they can stow away on a boat and, you know, escape for real and go back to Europe or whatever the hell their plan is. And they come across this general store. And the general store is owned by... uh, I want to say it's Leo Carroll. I think (laughs) Leo Leo Carroll and Joan Bennett play a married couple who are not really good with business, but they really love each other. They really love their, their daughter and they're happy, except they're really bad at running this general store. And Leo Carroll's, I think it's his cousin played by Basil Rathbone to the nines (laughs) Basil Rathbone actually owns the store and so he's coming to pay them a surprise visit to check on the profits and to kind of ask like why are you people such idiots like where's all my money (laughs) and so the 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 three convicts the three escaped convicts basically wind up becoming guardian angels to this family it's like Originally, they wander into the store and sort of think like, okay, can we rob these people? But when they realize how sort of sweet and innocent, <laughs> Leo, especially Leo Carroll is, they, they sort of say to themselves, all right, we're not really doing anything. We could probably stick around and help them. And then Basil Rathbone shows up and they're like, all right, it's on. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they decide that they're going to save the family from Basil Rathbone, okay. which Involves all of these incredible scenes like Humphrey Bogart is really good at really good with money, basically. And so he's going to cook the books for them. So (laughs) so it looks like they're successful. And Aldo Ray has a pet viper named Adolf, who he carries around. And like, I couldn't make this shit up, who, who he carries around in this little wicker basket And unfortunately they have to use Adolf at some point, like people die in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a Christmas movie with murder in it. (laughs) And it, it has a similar kind of Christmas Carol type greed doesn't pay message, but It just is so sweet and delightful and Peter Ustinov I could watch in anything. Like if he sat in an empty room and described paint drying, I probably would still be happy. But it's like this great ensemble cast and even though it takes place in the islands so it doesn't really look very Christmassy, like there's no snow or pine trees, it's just such a perfect Christmas movie. And I think it gives you also a kind of interesting contrast to Casablanca because it's over 10 years later and you see this much more maybe confident uh, Humphrey Bogart, who just is himself. Hmm. It's like he's not even trying to act anymore. He's just hanging out.
2: Yeah. Interesting. Still- yeah. I, uh, I mean, I of course know this movie, but I've, I've never watched it. So um, would you, I mean, how Christmassy is it? Because I, I, I have a thing like I can't watch uh, any th- sort of Christmas movie unless it's Christmas time. Uh, would I be able to say sit down and watch this in July?
1: Well, unless you're having some sort of Christmas in July marathon,
2: <laughs> no. Okay, <laughs> okay, so pretty Christmassy.
1: I so I have similar rules. I'm like ups. I'm sort of a maniac about rules. <laughs> And I have all these rules about, like, when I can and can't watch certain kinds of movies, which is nuts, but that's just how I like it. (laughs) And I similarly can't watch Christmas movies until the day after Thanksgiving. Usually I try to wait till, like, December 1st. But for me, it's, like, it's a movie that's set on Christmas... And the convicts make them Christmas dinner. And so it's like, it is a Christmas movie.
2: Okay. Yeah. This you gotta Wait. Okay. I I can wait. I can wait. Yeah. I like, there's so many, um, like I wanted to get the, uh, holiday affair and Christmas in Connecticut, all these blues. Um, but I have a hard time justifying, you know, spending, you know, whatever, 20 bucks or 15 bucks for a movie that I'm only going to watch once a year. Uh, and so, you know, luckily, you know, we have TCM and most of these movies uh, show up on on TCM around that time of year. Uh, but like I was man, I was so close this December, just like sitting down and like going through a bunch of those Warner Archive titles. and just being like, OK, I'm going to spend 100 bucks uh, online and get a bunch of Warner Archive Christmas movies.
1: You should have.
2: <laughs> I know I should have.
1: I'm, I'm also a bad influence where this is concerned because I am very privileged in the sense that a lot of companies just send me movies, but I don't really buy a lot on my own because I guess for me, unless something, it's like one of my favorite movies in a nice edition like that, I would totally buy. Or if it's a movie that I know I'm going to watch repeatedly, which for me is Christmas movies, like those I'm interested in owning, because otherwise it's like some of the movies I have. It's like, yeah, okay, I really like this, you know, weird late 70s slasher, but how many times in my life am I actually going to watch this disc?
2: Right. I mean, oh my God, isn't that the the story for, you know, a lot of Blu ray collectors where it's like struggle I, is real. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I I made a realization uh this February that okay, I'm not gonna buy anything uh unless I I need to, like for the podcast or for, you know, if yeah. I'm gonna be on somebody else's show, I'm I'm gonna stop buying discs because I'm almost out of room on my shelf and I don't wanna have to build another one and, you know, blah blah blah. Yeah anyways I
1: feel I feel the same way and it's For me, it's like I think a lot of people will write me and ask, especially during different company sales or, like, you know, the big Black Friday sales that happen, like, what are you buying? I'm like, I don't shop that way. Like, for years now, it's been to the point where I will, like, I'm not against paying to rent things at all. It's not like I need to get everything for free. It's just, like, because so much of what I watch revolves around – what i'm working on it's like i don't really buy things for fun
2: yep yep and that's that's what i had to kind of realize that um i i'm still going to be buying things but i need to uh rein it in (laughs) yeah for you know shelf space but also i mean you know i mean for god's sakes i should be uh conscious about my spending um so, okay. Um, although I. But, I, I but
1: everyone should buy We're No Angels.
2: <laughs> also, uh, I did pre order the uh, the Arrow's Switchblade Sisters uh, just because you and Kat and Heather uh, and uh, Alexandra. So, uh, you know, that was one that I probably won't show up on a show, but I had to own it. So.
1: Yeah, I am so excited about that. Kat and I recorded that track like last May, maybe. And. I would say for the most part, when I record commentaries, they're at least announced within two or three months. But every once in a while, like, I want to say there's still one or two for maybe like a year or two ago that haven't been announced yet. Oh, my gosh. I mean, some of that has to do with these smaller companies, if they're trying to bypass rights issues or they found some additional elements to restore it's like you just have to be understanding yep but switchblade sisters is one of those ones where i knew we were gonna have to wait a little bit to announce but i was like dying (laughs) and was so excited when it finally got announced and just the fact that both heather and alex are on it it's like all of all of my favorite people on one release basically.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's one, one of my favorite films. Crazy. Yeah, that was announced like the week uh Heather was on and uh I was like, "Oh my god, this is uh really really nice for me." Uh I'll have to say. Okay, so uh back to my third pick. I'll get through this real fast. Uh not as fun and uplifting as We're No Angels. Uh, this is from nineteen sixty-nine from director Alberto Latuada. Uh, Fraulein Doctor. Have you is this did you write about this in your book?
1: Oh yes. Okay. So I did not actually write about this in my book because I tried to avoid some of these like war action movies unless they could be talked about in the context of other films, if that makes sense. Yep. So, like, in my in my German chapters, I I basically talked about um, the the uh, the new German directors. So much more of the art house movies, and I did the same thing in the Italian chapters. And so there are all these Greek and Italian. Partisan movies and like war action movies that I consider genre films and not art house movies. Absolutely. Yep Because frontline doctors not really an art house movie. I was like, okay I have to leave some things out even though it's very sad So i'm gonna have to write more of these books basically.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is I mean This is straight up a a uh, you know in a spy an espionage movie but uh Uh, So this follows a female German spy by the codename Fraulein Doktor. um, And she's been charged with the assassination of the leader of the opposition during World War I uh, here. And so she and her team of secret agents are out to... They're going to steal the defense plans of the Allied forces, um, and they're going to steal the formula for this new nerve gas being developed... And they're going to assassinate this guy It is, uh, yeah, it's a straight-up Action spy thriller Uh, It's incredibly Sexy, uh, Susie Kendall uh, Plays Fraulein And she is Oh my, yeah, she is so, so Good, and uh, You know, she seduces men and Women alike Um, And it's, uh, yeah, it's a very, very Sexy, uh, thrilling Exciting movie um, it's loosely based on the life of, uh, the real life Fraulein doctor, whose name is Elsbeth, uh, Schragmuller. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I always love a movie that puts miniatures and like models to good use. And so you get a yeah. lot of that here, like with the model trains and stuff and the warships. Oh, it's so cool. Um, cause I, I always look at that as, you know, these filmmakers are out there just playing with toys and so it just looks, Basically. yeah, it looks fun as hell. That's why I love the Godzilla movies. I mean, these guys are just playing with toys. Um, but it looks awesome.
1: And doesn't this one have uh, uh, my boy Giancarlo in it? Yeah. <laughs>
2: He's
1: so good in everything. Yes.
2: Yeah. It, it's, yeah, it's really exciting. Um, there, a little warning here. They are There is a scene where they test this uh, nerve. I think it's mustard gas, maybe. On dogs and mice and you you know see actual animals in pain which is uh, really hard to watch um, and then you get these like brutal battle scenes with you know bombs and bodies exploding and body parts flying everywhere and, and chemical gas melting people's skin and it's really uh, as I'm talking about this I'm realizing obviously this wouldn't be in a, a book about art house movies it's an action movie but it's really exciting uh really sexy really fun um and that's that's all i got on fraulein doctor
1: it is very sort of the opposite of casablanca in many ways yeah
2: yeah, yeah it's <laughs> while a... being about similar subject matter yeah exactly yeah all right sam uh i went a little longer than i wanted to i know it's late for you uh but i cannot thank you enough Um, I know you're a busy person, but I would love to have you back again sometime in the future if you'd be down for it.
1: Yeah, that would be great. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Um, Okay, so where can uh, people find you online? What can you promote here?
1: Um, So, obviously, I think earlier we said that you can find the link to my book pre-order through my Twitter, which is just at Sam Deegan. Um I'm on Instagram under the same handle and people lately have been asking me a lot where they can find what commentaries I've done and things like that so I should probably get it together and have a, like a basic web page.
2: <laughs> yeah, I uh I did that today. I googled it just uh if I could throw down a list and I went through a couple pages and I was like, D-, you know, I think I did that for Lee too at one point Lee Gambin and oh, yeah, like, a lot. like there's, there should be like a, a website dedicated to just lists of, you know, commentaries of, you know, where can you find, you know, Tom Walker stuff and Sam Deegan stuff and cat stuff. I think that'd be great. Maybe I'll get on that. Who knows?
1: Yeah, I definitely should uh, at least put together a, a basic page like that for myself, because I think I'm now... Probably over a hundred commentaries, and oh so gosh. I I had a list for a while that I could like send people via PDF when they asked, but now I'm just like I can't even update it anymore. It's too <laughs> it's too overwhelming.
2: Oh, that's incredible! Yeah, well, yeah. Pre order that Arrow Switchblade Sisters. Uh, get that yeah. the Fun City editions of I Start Counting, um, which is great. The God your commentary. Just, I mean, I loved the film before, but I'm sitting there thinking, just the, the, I mean, you're obviously all about the history, and I loved it about, yeah, especially the, the serial killer, uh, in in British film, loved it. Thank you so much. Yeah, and go to go to her Twitter to get that uh, link for the uh, pre order for the book. Uh, you can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at Cult Movies Pod. You can follow me at A K Donnelly on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterbox. That's A K D O N E L L Y. Thank you for listening. Next week we've got Stephanie Crawford on the show to talk about Anthony Perkins and Tuesday Weld and Pretty Poison. Are you a fan, Sam?
1: I love pretty poison and i especially love anthony perkins and
2: stephanie is also wonderful that's um, it's gonna be super fun can't wait for that sam thank you again i can't thank you enough this was so awesome thank you so much